0: Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the Literary Editor of the Spectator, and this week my guest is the academic Rodri Jeffries Jones, whose new book is called A Question of Standing: The History of the CIA. Rodery, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Can you start by telling me I mean, isn't the history of the CIA one would think it's a sort of secret intelligence service? Is it not difficult to find out the material you need? How open is the CIA? How how available is the stuff you want? Well, I, I think that if you're looking for material
1: on current operations, very sensitive matters, it's extremely difficult. But uh, the one of the problems with writing about the CIA is the sheer volume of evidence which is at your disposal, because it was formed as a in a democratic manner in a democracy and an open society. And there's uh, always been an emphasis on open debate and open access to information. And this has uh, increased dramatically since the 1970s with the Freedom of Information Acts. So the main problem is marshalling the information and winnowing it
0: down to what you actually want to work with. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the sort of, I mean, probably not to the Connocheny, but to the likes of me, whose ideas about the CIA are probably <laughs> formed in part by Hollywood, one thinks of it as a sort of, you know, quite a, a secret organisation that works. In the, that this was the world's first, if you like, open intelligence service, democratically elected. Is that... Well, that's right, yes. I mean, obviously
1: in totalitarian countries, nobody knows anything about that kind of stuff at all. But even in democratic countries uh, such as our own, MI5 and MI6 uh, were not established with parliamentary approval and they had uh, a high degree of secrecy. Only in recent times really have members of the general public known who the directors of MI5 and MI6 are, for example. An inside coterie of journalists would probably have known. And if you look beyond this country, even countries in Scandinavia which are notable for having had op- open government since the 18th century, did not establish their secret services in an open manner. They were set up in, 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 in as
0: secret organizations unknown to the uh, public. So was that quite a radical thing when it was started? I mean, did it seem like a contradiction in terms?
1: I think that uh, people on the inside who were aware of how intelligence agencies in other countries worked could see that, there was something of an anomaly here that you had a secret, a secret organisation which is uh, openly uh, accountable. But uh, in, in the context of domestic politics in the United States, I think it was on a continuum because there had been always uh, strong objections to secrecy and strong suspicions of federal government, of central governments in America, with accusations that they were doing things in secret for the benefit of uh, an elite. Against the interests of the of the majority i mean if, if you go back to the first world war, for example, one of uh, Woodrow wilson's great points diplomatically was that the United States wanted diplomacy to be openly uh, conducted, and he argued that the problems with European politics had been a lot of secret plotting behind the scenes, and that had resulted in the tragedy of the first world war and ironically uh, Wilson. Himself then had recourse to secrecy, and his administration set up an organisation called U One, something that even today people don't um, recognise, highly secret central intelligence uh, organisation. But when it came to the post World War II period in establishing uh, an intelligence organisation that would operate in peacetime, then. The government really had to resort to Congress to get uh, funding and to get uh, support, which they which they did. There was overwhelming support for the CIA in its early days. I think the first opinion poll had it at uh, 74% approval rating from the general public. And there was a feeling in, in, in Congress that it was urgent to avoid the mistakes at Pearl Harbor when the nation had been caught by surprise. But there was still a dichotomy between the administration point of view and the congressional point of view, because Truman emphasized the Cold War, the need to stand up to the Soviet Union.
0: I mean, you've given your book the title A Question of Standing, and you you explain in your introduction and through the pages that when you're talking about standing, that affects not only standing with the public, but the standing with Congress and its standing in the world. Can you give me a sense of how you've, how that, sort of reflects the shape of your book and what you were trying to do with it?
1: My my grouse about the history of the CIA is that it was set up quite rightly as an intelligence organisation and it's been sidetracked because of opportunism in the White House, looking for quick fixes, covert operations of one type or another. These have um, blackened the name of the agency and lost it a great deal of its standing with the uh, general public and with Congress, which means uh, that uh, getting funding for the uh, agency is difficult. And also it means that some of the findings of the analysts are greeted with disbelief just because the agency itself has a reputation for dirty tricks. So I was trying to write the book from a point of um, a view of someone who has sympathy with the agency's analysts who try to find out what's going on in the world and penetrate
0: other hostile nations' secrecy. That question of the remit of the CIA is one that runs right through the book. Is your view that, as originally constituted, it was essentially for finding stuff out, for what I think you call its estimating function, and that that's the way it should have remained, because it seems like for a lot of its history, actually more money is being spent on acting in the world than on understanding it, if an analytical distinction can be usefully made there.
1: Yes, that, that's right. Um, there was at the very beginning a dichotomy between those who um, looked at it as an organization which should prevent nasty surprises from happening to the United States. Now, an intelligence analyst will tell you that's not really a good approach even to analysis because an intelligence agency should do a lot more than try to preempt surprise attacks. And in fact, it's virtually impossible to preempt all surprise attacks anyway. What you're trying to do is to have long-range forecasts about, for example, how many tanks, how many missiles the uh, Soviet Union has. But uh, from the beginning, there were also those who regard it as an instrument of the Cold War. The argument was that the other side, the communist world, Soviet Union and and, and China, were resorting to all kinds of dirty tricks, trying, for example, to suborn the results of uh, elections in post-war Europe, in Italy and France particularly. And the feeling was that if the uh, communists had... um, bribed all the uh, journalists in a certain publication. The answer was to buy up all the ink so that they couldn't uh, publish what they were going to say. And the CIA entered into that kind of activity. So um, that became uh, something expected of the CIA. And once presidents got the idea that the CIA could rescue them from a particular fix, then that idea caught on strongly. I think uh, it's uh, a matter that has some historical background. I think most people are familiar with the Monroe Doctrine of 1823 where the United States declared its hegemony virtually in the Western Hemisphere, saying that there should be no more colonization of Western countries and leaving the countries of the Western Hemisphere open to American influence. So in order to enforce its decisions in various parts of South America the United States resorted to gunboats uh, diplomacy, sent in the Marines to occupy various countries uh, for prolonged periods. And this caused huge resentment and a wave of anti-Yankee feeling. So in 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt agreed at the Montevideo conference held that year that the United States or any other Latin country, any other Western hemisphere country, would refrain from interfering by military means in the internal affairs of other nations. And that worked fine until the Cold War, and there was a widespread attempt by the Soviet Union to influence elections and happenings in Western hemispheric countries ranging from Venezuela to Cuba. So it was felt that the United States had to respond, but lacking the authority anymore to respond openly because of the uh, agreement in 1933, they resorted to secret tactics instead and uh, deployed the CIA. The problem is that uh, when they were found out, then people in Latin America became even more suspicious of the United States. Not only are they
0: interfering, but they're doing it in an underhand manner. That business of being found out, the CIA operations that we all know most about tend to be the ones that went terribly wrong, like like the Bay of Pigs being kind of maybe the original exemplar of that. Is it your sense from the the work you've done to this book that actually of the covert operations they conducted, the ones that weren't found out, if you like, were more successful than we give them credit for? I mean, you know, there's a sort of survivorship bias that goes on that, that it's the cock-ups we know all about. So we think of them as being disastrously meddling and so forth. Are they actually more often competent? (laughs) Well, in in a way, that's an an unanswerable
1: question because there there may have been and almost certainly were operations that succeeded by various definitions and we've never heard of them. Uh, But uh, one one can't comment on that in detail because uh, one doesn't have the uh, information. But uh, there's also the phenomenon of failure masquerading as success. Place two episodes into that category. One was the overthrow of the government of Iran in 1953, which at the time seemed a great success. Amongst other things, it uh, defended the oil interests and access to oil in the region for the United States and for this country as well. And the overthrow of the Guatemalan government in the following year, 1954, which uh, advanced the interests of the um, United Fruit Company based in Boston, Massachusetts, which had big investments in Guatemala. And it was the uh, reputation for success that that generated within government circles, not, of course, with the general public, because the general public didn't know anything about it. But um, the reputation of success lay at the roots of the overconfidence in going into Cuba. But one could also argue that resorting to operations like that, which on the surface, succeeded, nevertheless led to the uh, perception of uh, the United States as some kind of international villain. And it's no coincidence, I think, that these operations coincide with America's loss of a majority in the General Assembly of the United Nations by the end of the 1950s. I mean, the UN, after all, was an American creation that arose out of a conference in San Francisco. The headquarters is still in New York City, and yet they lost uh, control of it. And I think that, that um, behind-the-scenes uh, covert operations contributed to that. And indeed, there were some investigations at the time and in the 1960s which confirmed that.
0: That's originally constituted the sort of setup, as I understand it, you set out very clearly at the beginning of how the CIA was set up. It has this overseas-only remit. There's this kind of jostling slight, Question of how it relates to the FBI, which which is domestic. And, and it's a civilian rather than a military organization, even though a lot of the stuff it has done on the covert side has been sort of military in character. How much sense did that particular way of dividing the pie make at the outset? And how much sense does it make now, if you can give me a sense of how that's, that trajectory has gone?
1: At the outset it made um, political sense to split the intelligence remits between the FBI and the CIA because the the image of the Gestapo was uh, very strong in in the mind of Americans and the Americans were very suspicious of any government activity which might smack of the Gestapo and its uh, tactics. And the feeling was that the creation of a super-Gestapo which would have both a domestic and a foreign remit would be very injurious to American liberty. So it made uh, political sense uh, at, at the time. In terms of making sense from the, making sense from the intelligence point of view, it was a doubtful, uh, a, a dubious uh, arrangement because um, in the, the realm of counterintelligence, for example, that has both a foreign and a, a domestic angle to it and with a very strong uh, crossover and lots of links, you have to stop your intelligence at the three-mile limit, as the CIA was uh, supposed to do, and ask the FBI to supply the information that it needs to complete the picture. Then you have to contend with all kinds of uh, uh, problems. A major problem here being that there was historic distrust between the FBI and the CIA. I mean, maybe that was institutionally inevitable, but there's also the personal dimension, of course, because J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI from 1924 until his death in the the 1970s, uh, J. Edgar Hoover very much resented the creation of the CIA, which snatched from him the the great surprise, the great prize that he had always wanted. And indeed, at the end of the war, the, the FBI already had the Latin American remits. And a network of spies all over latin america who had been sent down there to, to contend with nazi influence in the in south america but was already switching its attention to trying to counter the spread of uh, communism in the um western hemisphere and when uh, the cia was fo- formed the fbi had experienced agents in latin america but refused to hand them over to the CIA. The CIA had to start from scratch. So for one reason or another, and they're not always logical, that wasn't a uh, wonderful arrangement. I think uh, you ask about today, and I think today's scene has been changed because of the changes that took place in reaction to 9-11. And there is now, under the original arrangements, the director of the CIA was also the Director of Central Intelligence, and he was supposed to coordinate information from the FBI and other parts of the intelligence community, like the National Security Agency, supposed to coordinate all that. But he didn't really have the administrative clout to do it. So in the aftermath of uh, 9-11, the Bush administration introduced the uh, Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act And that created a new post of director of national intelligence. So this new director was supposed to exercise more authority and and to get over this dichotomy between foreign and domestic intelligence. However, I'm not entirely convinced that it works all that strongly. For example, if you get into the realm of uh, cyber warfare, the CIA has now set up, this happened under Obama, and uh, a director, John Brennan, they established uh, a new division within the CIA for digital intelligence, which includes um, cyber warfare. But uh, there's a problem here, which is that if you if take, for example, Russian interference in American politics, they do so through media sources, which are either actually or ostensibly located within the United States. And the CIA is still supposed to stop at that three 3 mile limit beyond the territorial waters territorial waters of the United States. So it, I'd say it continues to be a, a problem, and maybe that's one reason why the Russians have been able to get away with some of the things that they have been getting away
0: with. We have had instances, I mean, you know, long before now, I think it was in the 70s particularly, where the CIA just simply ignored that three-mile limit and was spying on domestic sub- subversives as they saw it, and there was... You know, there's a huge amount of the CIA doing stuff they weren't supposed to and being caught out. Now I'm trying to get a sense how much is that historically or has that historically been a case of the CIA essentially going rogue, because the rogue elephant taking decisions, if you like, independently of the chief executive? And how much has that tended to be the president asked the CIA to do a bunch of dodgy stuff because It's Subrosa and all the best. And when it comes out, they go, we had no idea.
1: The CIA is uh, supposed to be the dog's body who takes the the, the blame, as John F. Kennedy told uh, Alan the director of the CIA, after the Bay of Pigs. They're the scapegoats, the the official scapegoats. And and Kennedy made the distinction between British politics and uh, American politics. He said if the Bay of Pigs had happened under the remit of a British prime minister, the British prime minister would would have had to resign. But he said, this is the United States and you design as head of the uh, CIA. Although, of course, it was Kennedy who made the mistakes as, as much as Dallas. Uh, as yeah, I think this uh, rogue elephant um, idea came in during the investigation of the CIA in the 1970s. And it was really a tactical invention by Senator Church, who had in charge of the Senate inquiry and had uh, presidential uh, um, ambitions. To begin with, it is all very simple. You showed that um, the CIA had um, been acting in a terrible manner under a Republican president, President Nixon. The Republicans soon got the idea of perhaps looking a bit further back in history and finding, they found, of course, that the um, Democrats had set up the CIA. President Truman had had overseen COVID operations in the 1940s. The CIA had done all kinds of things under John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, such as organizing assassinations, and and so on. So Church came up with a new idea, that the CIA was a rogue elephant out of control in order to remove the whole issue from partisan politics. But if you look for actual examples of the CIA defying presidential authority, you don't find very many. And to give you one example, the CIA had a a department called the um, Health Alteration Bureau, which developed the salium the, um, uh, powder to be sprinkled into Fidel Castro's sandals to make his beard fall out, which would remove his machismo and therefore he'd be a, f- a failure in Latin American democracy. You know, like, But also they developed a, a poison for killing leaders they didn't like and so on. But anyway, uh, when the Congressional Inquiry looked into this in the mid-70s, uh, the, there was an executive order from President Ford that um, all these toxins should be destroyed and the Bureau should be disbanded. But it didn't happen for some reason, as people found out later. But this is really a rarity. Mostly it's the uh, it's a direct order from the White House which uh, gives authority for these various operations, some of which came unstuck in a dramatic way.
0: I have a book on my shelf which I I bought in Cuba, which is... Literally, a sort of a paperback book, which is a list of all the assassination attempts the CIA made on Fidel Castro, including, or, you know, including the the beard thing, exploding seashells, God knows what. I mean, it was published in Cuba, I think, as propaganda. There's a sort of sense that the CIA's nefariousness, you know, these health alteration bureaus, the assassination, it's become the legend of the CIA, the myth of the CIA is this this organisation that spends its entire time trying to bump off foreign politicians it doesn't like i mean has that been a net loss if you like to the states a net vulnerability to the states in terms of its public standing i think it's been a a
1: net loss to the standing of the united states as the thing from the cia and also uh, a net loss for the uh, cia itself i suppose that the cia has um the advantage of being a feared organization but um I think it's not really the Western way of doing things through fear, and the, uh, I think in terms of wartime, you, you have to have uh, ruthless operations. For example, in um, in in the Ukraine, uh, we don't know what the CIA is up to, but one, one hopes it isn't too gentle. It's a wartime situation, but in peacetime situations, I think we have um, an advantage over the autocracies, China and the and, and Russia. And in fact, I think we have a Trump hand at the moment because the Cold War was uh, predicated uh, on an ideological clash between socialism and capitalism plus plus democracy. Well, the um, autocracies, uh, China and Russia, can no longer really claim to be communist countries. Russia doesn't make much of an effort at all. And the Chinese effort is, is quite laughable considering that they have hugely rich individuals who conduct their business, just as one might expect people in the West to conduct their business. So the um, moral advantage that these countries have in trying to achieve influence in Africa and uh, other countries is is now lost, and we have the upper hand, it seems to me, because not only do we have the advantages of um, democracy and free enterprise, but also uh, we have a concern for the predicaments of the less fortunate in society. I mean, as you see in the current debate within the Conservative Party about what to do about um, the uh, impact on poor people of uh, energy prices. I mean, you you only have to listen to that debate to realise that in Western countries there's a concern, there's a, a major concern about the predicament of the less fortunate in society. But that used to be the Trump hand of the, of the communists, whether you believed their arguments are not. They could make that argument. But we now have logic on our side and uh, a great moral appeal we can make in the world. So it seems to me that there's no need to resort to underhand uh, tricks anymore. They've become uh, anachronistic now. Uh, they were never particularly advisable, but I think they're anachronistic particularly at the moment. So, I mean, I would, I would question, for example, um, well, international terrorism is another kind of question, of course, but some of the tactics used against international terrorism have been questionable, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, this original, the health adjustment side of things, it only came out, didn't it? It was a kind of extraordinary moment in your, but almost by accident, Gerald Ford says something to the effect of, oh, you better not ask me about that or or I'll have to tell you about the assassinations.
1: That's right, yes.
0: But is that really how, how the CIA's dirty tricks became public?
1: Journalists did suspect what was going on but uh, it gave them their um, leverage to be able to open this up as a matter of public discussion. I I think Ford himself was shocked when he discovered this. He didn't know about it. He should have been briefed about it, but um, Nixon didn't exactly um, perform his responsibilities in briefing his successor because he resigned in disgrace, I suppose, and he didn't feel like it. So it came as a shock to Ford. The CIA had uh, anticipating that there was going to be trouble. The CIA had compiled its own list of dirty tricks in a single document, a summary of them, all, for the information of people in the CIA as well as uh, eventually in in, in the White House. Because not everybody in in the CIA, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing in in the CIA. There's um, vertical compartmentalization in order to keep the secrets. So only authorized persons within the CIA are allowed to know certain things. But this came from the uh, director's office in the CIA. The, the, the list was established under a director called Schlesinger, fell into the hands of uh, his successor, uh, Colby. And it was called The the Family Jewels. It's now available online. You, you can look at it uh, on, online. And it is this document, that was given to Ford to to look at, and what's jumped out of the page for him was not matters such as the subsidization of, of the rights in Chilean politics. What really jumped out of the page for him was assassination plots, although ironically none of them has had succeeded at least no attempt to assassinate national leaders has succeeded, famously, the attempts to assassinate Castro. Failed. You mentioned the Cuban dog, um, book that you read. The Cubans reckon there were hundreds of attempts to assassinate Castro, uh, but even
0: yes, you 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 put the the total a bit lower, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the CIA, you know, would say a few dozen. But anyway, they they, they failed uh, to, to get rid of Castro. The attempt to assassinate um, uh, Patrice Lumumba in the in the Congo which was a, a Health Alteration Bureau efforts? Everything was prepared. The poison was prepared. But the um, the Belgian um, special forces got there first and killed a member before the Americans could. So, in a way, it, it, it is um, a cha- an, un, an unfulfilled program in the chapter of Bungles,
0: but it still shocked President George. Now, on the competence front, at least apocryphally, you know, the, the sort of charges that are laid against the CIA is that they, they don't foresee any of the big surprises that they exist to foresee. So, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Iranian Revolution, 9 11. You know, there's a whole sort of string of pivotal points at which the CIA is supposed to have just absolutely got it wrong. Your book seems to qualify that view a little and say that quite often the CIA did sort of get it right, but the politicians ignored them. Is that a fair Way of summing it? Uh, that's, that's right. Well, of course, the
1: CIA did get a, a lot of things wrong. I mean, looking at the CIA, looking at world history, and you, you know, you, some critics expect the, the CIA to be able to predict any event in world history. That's to, a totally unreasonable expectation of uh, any organization. They failed to get the um, Soviet atomic bomb explosion of 1949 right. They thought it's going to be two years later. Fall of the Berlin Wall, they didn't foresee that, and they got the timing of the fall of communism wrong. Although they'd worked hard to achieve it, it was almost as if they didn't believe uh, in, in their own prowess when it actually, when it actually happened. Nine Eleven. 11 I think that's, this brings us to the politician's role in uh, assigning blame, because Nine Eleven is a classic case of the CIA being made the scapegoats for what went wrong. And the CIA did make some mistakes. For example, uh, they they had nobody able to translate from Pashtun, the um, dialect in eastern Afghanistan, Pashto, And and, and Osama bin Laden, who was an architect of 9-11, of the attack, was in hiding in that part of the world. They didn't have enough um, Arabic translators even, in spite of the presence of 100,000 native Arab, Arab speakers in the United States, most of whom were Christians. You know, you couldn't accuse them of being Muslim uh, f- fundamentalists. There was no reason why they couldn't have had more Arab speakers able to translate messages more quickly. If they had done that, they would have been able to identify where the attack was going to place, take place, when it was going to take place, as well as the likely people involved were. So... They had um, quite a few of the dots. The FBI had a lot of dots available. There was a, a failure to coordinate. You could um, take Condoleezza Rice to task. She was national security affairs advisor and skipped a couple of meetings which uh, where red, red
0: flags were being thrown by the by the CIA. I think you're right that one of those important meetings that she skipped was a meeting that she actually called. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yes. So, in this case, uh,
1: the, deal, the deal was it was allowed to continue, but it would have to take the blame for 9-11. And most of the reports on 9-11 do point the finger at the CIA more than they do at uh, other factors. Then, of course, uh, it meant that the CIA was softened up by the time the uh, weapons of mass destruction controversy took place the arguments over whether uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq was developing chemical warfare weapons but more importantly perhaps uh, n- nuclear weapons the um U- UN inspectors d- thought that he wasn't and retrospectively it's clearly that he wasn't uh, doing this but the Bush administration for some reason wanted to have the Wmd argument at their disposal to justify the invasion of Iraq. I remember at at the time thinking there was plenty of justification to invade Iraq because Saddam Hussein was a latter-day Hitler on a minor scale. He was a dreadful person and regime change in Iraq was, was highly desirable. But I think in the estimates of the Bush administration, that did not necessarily wash with the American people. But if you could make an argument that the safety of American citizens was threatened by the development of nuclear weapons in Iraq, then everybody would be on your side and the invasion would be justified. So the support of the CIA was marshaled for this uh, misinterpretation of the evidence about uh, weapons of mass destruction. And that emerged very clearly in subsequent inquiries and congressional investigations, weakened the standing of the CIA and of its analysts, and the 2004 legislation, which was a major demotion for the CIA, was a consequence of
0: that. In terms of the culture of the CIA, in its origins, it was very much accused of being, you know, as you've said, one of its weaknesses has been that it's it hasn't had, for instance, you know, after the Iranian revolution, it didn't have very many Farsi-speaking field agents, it didn't have people who spoke Pashto, it didn't it was weakened by a sort of homogeneity in its personnel. And in in its outset, you say it was seen very much as a kind of Ivy League, country club kind of organisation. Has that changed? There was a perceived
1: change in the wake of the uh, Bay of Pigs disaster in 1961. The uh, American journalist Stuart Orsop, famously remarked that the... um, the bold Easterners, the Ivy Leaguers, had passed from the scene and were replaced by mere technocrats. This seemed to be conspicuously the case because Dulles, the long-serving director who was uh, fired because of the Bay of Pigs, was a Princeton man, uh, Ivy League University, and was succeeded by John McCone, who I think was uh, a graduate of Stanford University and was a uh, technician and had been the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission before taking over the leadership of the CIA. So these people were very much interested in atomic technology, uh, keeping an eye on what the Russians are up to in, in, in that respect. Though McCone actually proved to be um, quite astute when it came to judging the Soviet uh, mentality, in, in spite of not being Ivy Legal and having a humanities education and and not being able to speak Russian and all the rest of it. He proved to be quite a good advisor. But there was a perception that this was taking place. In fact, if you do uh, an analysis of middle-ranking CIA personnel, there's not much change before and after 1961. But a change seemed to be conspicuous because it involved changes at the top of the, uh, of the CIA. Today, I think there's um, still a strong sprinkling of Ivy Leaguers in the CIA. There's a question, mark over whether they are the best Ivy Leaguers. I mean, you know, there are clever Ivy Ivy Leaguers and um, very clever Ivy Leaguers. Who are you going to hire? And the suspicion is that the State Department gets the the, uh, top brains and the uh, CIA people are um, a a step down. But there has been more diversification, more people from, for example, uh, there were more Catholics in the CIA from the 1960s on. Fordham University, for example, has uh, produced a number of prominent CIA leaders and that's a Catholic university that meant uh, an influx of uh, people from with an Irish background as opposed to Anglo-Saxon background and from the time of the senior Bush George W Bush from his presidency and then uh, and and the Clinton too there was a further diversification uh, for example homosexual um, people were allowed to serve in the CIA previously there was a, a fear that they might be black, blackmailed because they were gay, uh, although there was no evidence for, of that ever having happened. But nevertheless, there was a feeling. But that changed about then. Many more women were admitted to the CIA and members of ethnic minorities. And once admitted to the organization, they became quite militant and formed associations to advance their gender or their people of their race further within the echelons of the CIA. So the result is that you have today a CIA that's more representative of the American people, which is good politically, good for its standing. But also operationally, uh, I would argue um, it's a desirable thing because after all, they're dealing with um, the rest of the world uh, where people don't come from that uh, Anglo-Saxon background. It's not just that people are sitting behind their desks and trying to get into the mentality of, people who live in Mongolia it's a question of sending someone to uh, Mongolia who you know is, is not a white person with a short haircut and uh, wearing a you know white shirt and black tie all the time. Someone who looks like a Mongolian is much likely to uh, find out what's going on there.
0: <laughs> you'd think wouldn't you what sort of state what sort of standing does the CIA now have because as your book traces over the years it's had gets the blame for a lot of things. It's you know, There are even calls for it to be abolished at various points. How does it stand now? How strong an organisation is it? And how effective an organisation is it?
1: Mm. I think there's been uh, quite a bit of fluctuation recently. As I, I you say, there was a, a, a serious proposal to abolish it in the 1990s because it was felt that it was a Cold War organisation. Its purpose had been to fight the Soviet Union Soviet Union had collapsed. Who needed the CIA anymore? Then along came Osama bin Laden, and and he rescued the CIA. It had a new mission, fighting international terrorism. And it reached a a peak in terms of personnel and budgets. In 2010, its budget in 2010 was 80 billion. Well, sorry, that was the overall intelligence budget, of which the CIA had 14.7 billion. But since then, under uh, Obama... It was uh, scaled back a little bit, but just be- that was just because Obama was not invested in foreign wars so much and he didn't need the um, intelligence um, apparatus at his disposal to the degree that his predecessor, uh, George Bush, had, had, uh, had needed it. It wasn't because Obama was against intelligence. And on the contrary, Obama, as, as I think I mentioned, appointed uh, John Brennan to be head of the CIA, and he was a great success. Modernized the agency, brought it up to de- to date in digital terms. So it was doing pretty well under Obama, and then came along Trump, and there was a great uh, destabilization in, in in a couple of uh, respects. I mean, Trump. I know not many people hold this view, but uh, I would take seriously Trump's idea that um, he might be able to get along with Putin. He was a, a deal maker he explicitly said he wanted to improve relations with uh, with Russia. But of course, Putin made the cardinal error of trying to capitalize on a potential ally in the White House by interfering in the election in 2016. Now, the CIA was in a position to expose this. They had a mole in the Kremlin, and they were able to find out what the... Soviet Union had been up to and why and how, how they had uh, done it. This did not go down well with Trump. Trump didn't like the CIA anyway, because he subscribed to the idea that the CIA was an Ivy League elitist kind of organization. He, he didn't like people in the CIA. He, he was also opposed to the uh, FBI. He didn't like the FBI very much. So under Trump, I think that the CIA suffered from neglect in in the the White House and also from open enmity from the White House. And one consequence of that was that uh, the CIA lost its standing with Republican voters. At the height of the 1916 controversy, only 4% of those who identified themselves as Republicans approved of the CIA. Whereas previously, Republicans had been very much associated with national security and uh, the cia had been one of their icons absolutely loved the uh, the cia so that was a destabilizing factor when it became a political football vis-a-vis republicans versus uh, democrats since the departure of um, trump from the white house i think the cia has had a significant increase in its standing and uh, capability not least because of two factors. First, Biden understands uh, international politics and is uh, in in favour of having an organisation like the CIA. And and secondly, because he appointed the very gifted director, uh, William J. Burns, who had been ambassador to Moscow, who knew Russia very well. He is someone who um, is fully aware of the menace posed by Putin and his policies. And yet at the same time, has a record of dealing with the uh, with the Russians and uh, could conceivably be someone who could help with backdoor diplomacy when it comes to resolving a major dispute such as that taking place in the Ukraine. It's quite significant, I think, that his father, Robert Burns, was a major general in the administration of President Reagan and helped to negotiate the substantial reduction in, uh, in n- nuclear arsenals which took place under President Reagan.
0: Uh, do you think it's place as, if you like, a sort of repository, at least in the public mind, for America's bad conscience? It's a repository as a sort of scapegoat for all of the underhand things that are done or the, the sort of illegal things that are done, which is certainly is how you know, a lot of the wider world it's seen as, you know, it's a great bogeyman. Do you think that's something that, is behind it or can be put behind it? Or is it useful to have it there? Well,
1: I think that's uh, an ambivalence towards the uh, CIA as th- that is towards the FBI. I mean, if you take the case of uh, La- La- Latin America, they just love to denounce the United States and uh, to denounce the CIA more or less in the same breath. And if you're a rising politician in Latin America, that's a, a useful thing to do but there's also a, a parallel phenomenon which is that once in office they make sure that they cooperate with, this, with the united states and they possibly gain the support of the of the cia because they rightly or wrongly they see the cia as a can do organization that uh, gets things right and t- turning to europe there's a certainly a strain of um, criticism of the CIA and the FBI in europe I and mean, if you take the European Union for example, and the establishment of europol, there was a terrific barrage of criticism of europol on on, on the ground that it was likely to become another uh, a, a become a european version of the FBI meaning the FBI of Edgar Hoover did lots of things wrong similarly there was hostility to the CIA but uh the um Prime Minister of Belgium re- remarked on, on, on one occasion that what they really need in Belgium is uh, a CIA. So there's that ambivalent strain of thinking about the CIA, I think. It is true on balance, I think, that uh, its activities have had the effect of weakening America's uh, soft diplomacy. But that is something that I think you, you attribute more to the White, House, White House's bungled handling of the, bungled handling of the CIA rather than to the agency itself.
0: Roger Jeffrey-Jones, thank you very much for your time. A Question of Standing is out now. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.